Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you take them out and turn in them to 1 Timothy chapter 4. The text of the sermon is printed in the bulletin for you, and you're welcome to follow along there. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to get those out as well. We've been going through 1 Timothy this fall together as a church, and what we've said all along is that this is the letter that Paul the Apostle writes to Timothy. Timothy, he is charging to stay and to pastor this church that's at Ephesus. Timothy, in some ways, is Paul's young protege, and this letter is a letter of, of training to Timothy to teach him how to pastor a church. He's said, we said he's going into a difficult situation, a church that is beset by troubles and problems and false teachers, and so Paul sends him with great confidence to pastor this church and says, this is what you do. This is how you teach and pastor and lead this congregation of God's people. But at the same time, we said it, it, it seems pretty clear that Paul, even as he writes to Timothy specifically, he expects and he knows that the church is sort of reading over his shoulder. So this is a letter that's not only for Timothy as a pastor, but it's for the church. And I want to remind us of that today because we're getting into a section here at the end of chapter 4 that starts in verse 6 and it goes to the end of the chapter where Paul is speaking specifically to Timothy as a pastor. He's giving him some instructions, sort of pastor to pastor, that this is what you do. The last couple chapters have been sort of broader, focused on the whole church. This is for a pastor. And so you say, great, I can check out and only Jeff needs to listen to this sermon. This is for him. But that's not quite true. I think Paul still expects the church is looking over Timothy's shoulder. How does he instruct him? And in some ways, these instructions, they're for a pastor, but they're also for us all. This is instruction in growth and godliness, in training in righteousness. As he says here in verse 6, this is what it means to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to read for us 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 6. I'll go through the end of verse 10. And if you're able, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word today? First Timothy 4, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its truth on our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that the spirit that inspired these words to be written for the benefit of the church may now be with us, may now speak them into our hearts, give them to us with his power and with his unction, that we may hear, that we may believe, and that we might obey with great joy. In the name of Christ our Savior, on whom our hope is set, that we pray these words in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I don't know what your favorite movie is, 
But I imagine that I could probably tell you the plot of that movie if I tried, because in some way, all movies have a very similar plot, right? They all start with some character, the main character of the story, who's probably going to become the hero, and he has some goal in mind. He has some great desire, some wish he wants to fulfill. Maybe it's a, a race that he wants to win. Maybe it's a boxing match or a hockey game or a football game that he wants to win. Maybe it's a nation that he wants to save or to set free. Maybe it's a ring he wants to destroy. Maybe it's a girl's heart that he wants to win over her affections. But he has some goal, some desire, and he needs to accomplish that. But he recognizes that there's a problem. He is not able to do it. He's not qualified. He's not trained. And so then we have this section in the movie where there's a period of training where he undertakes this intense series of trainings to be able to fulfill his desire. So perhaps we have the karate kid who's painting fences to learn the moves that he will use. Or we have some athlete who's running stairs at the stadium, building up his endurance to be able to go and to win the race or the game or the victory of some sort. Or perhaps we have Tom Cruise with the bat on his shoulders eating Chinese food while he figures out the arguments that he can use to win the court case. Or perhaps we have Dusty Crophopper, the airplane, training on his radial G-turns so he can win the Wings Around the Globe rally. Judah was really supposed to be here for that last part, <laughs> and he just went to the nursery, oh well. <laughs> but we have someone who undertakes this, this path of training so that they can build themselves up to accomplish the goal that they have in mind, and then we come to the final showdown where all the training now is put into action. And the question is, is it going to be sufficient? Is what they have worked for so hard, what they have trained themselves for, will they be able to accomplish their goal? That's roughly every movie out there in some way, if you, if you look in broad strokes, and that's sort of our passage here as well. This is a passage about training. You might have heard that word at least twice in here. Paul is talking about training ourselves for godliness training ourselves for godliness. That is in verse 7. Rather, train yourself for godliness. That's the main thrust of this. That's his main point, his main instruction to Timothy is, Timothy, train yourself for godliness. That's the goal. That's what he wants to accomplish. Now, he needs to undergo training for that. And what we'll see, this is the way Paul puts it. First, he needs to be trained in the scriptures. Trained in the scriptures. Second, to train for godliness. And what we see at the end is this is a training regimen that's built on hope. It's a training regimen that is built on, fueled by, motivated by the hope that is set on Jesus Christ, the Savior of all people. So first he says to him, first Timothy, be trained in the scriptures. Be trained in the scriptures. Look at verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers... You will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine you have followed. This is the first thing we see is he gives sort of a pastoral instruction here to Timothy. This is pastoral instruction to Timothy that he tells him the first thing to do as part of his job description. He's been put in charge here in Ephesus. Difficult church, what do I do? Well, here's the first thing. Put these things before the brothers. Put these things before the brothers. We see he's kind of stepping back. He's been in the midst of instructions all about worship, all about elders and deacons and false teaching. Now he steps back and says, Timothy, put these things before the church. In other words, he's saying, preach the word, Timothy. 
Preach the word. All this instruction that he's given, put it before the church. This is what you do with it. He says these things probably means either the whole of 1 Timothy to this point or, or maybe everything starting with chapter 2 where he says, first of all, first of all, now he begins his instructions for the church and now in 4.6 he steps back and says, Timothy, this is what you do with this. Put it before the church. Take what you have learned, take what you have heard from me, Paul, take all this in instruction, put it before them. Let them hear it. Let them see it. Let them learn these instructions that are coming for the church. He's saying preach the word. That's the first job description of the pastor, is to preach, to take the word of God and the scriptures that are given to us that we might learn the way of godliness and to put it before the church, to spread it out for them. This is one of the ways I, I like to think about the task of preaching is to just take the scriptures and put it out there as though there were a big banquet table here at the front of the church and my job is just to open the scriptures to us, take the Bible, open it up and point us to a passage here, these five verses and, and just set the table filled with rich food that comes out of this passage. To walk through it verse by verse, to open up the glories that are here and to, and to say, look at what is here. Look at the scriptures that are given to us. I have nothing else to say, but I want to point us to the scriptures. I want to take us here and to put this before you. To put it before you so that we can enjoy it. So that we can come and feed our souls on the good news of Jesus Christ that's given to us in the scriptures. We want to put this before the church. That's what a pastor is to do, is to preach the word. You remember the description that we have in the Old Testament of Ezra. Ezra was a priest... You know, there's a, a book of the Bible named after him, and in Ezra 7.10, it describes him. It says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. It says he's to study it, to do it, and to teach it. That's a pretty good pastoral job description, and it's pretty good for all of us to say, this is what we ought to be doing, is studying the word of God, doing it, and then as a, a pastor or a teacher, also teaching it to others. And here's the outcome of it in verse 6. It says, put them before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. You will be a good servant of Jesus. Now, I really love this description right here. Because he's describing Timothy in his role as a pastor and saying, Timothy, if you put the scriptures before the church, you'll be a good servant of Jesus the word there for servant, that's, we've seen that word, it's diakonos, it's the same word he uses for deacons earlier, but in this case he's not using it in any technical sense of deacon, it's just the normal word servant. You'll be a good servant. There's lots of words that are used in the Bible to describe what a pastor is. It's an elder, an overseer, he's a shepherd, he's an evangelist. This is one of my favorites. He's a servant. The pastor is a servant of Jesus Christ. It's not a flashy word. It's not a word that, that describes power or prestige. In fact, it's, it's just a plain servant, someone who in the world gets no respect at all, but in the kingdom of Jesus, the servant of the Lord is honorable and noble. It's honorable to be last. It's honorable to, to put others in front of yourself, and that's what a pastor is to do. But it's not only a title for pastors. For everyone in the kingdom of God is called to be the servant of all. So this is the title for all of us, for all who love Jesus, who desire to follow him, that 
that we may one day hear those glorious words that we look forward to, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with little. Enter into the joy of your master. That's the goal. That's the goal. And so he says, you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 6 here, a good servant is one who is trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. Look at verse 6, where he says, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in two things, the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. The words of the faith, probably what he means here is the words of the faith is the gospel message, those words that describe particularly the good news of Jesus Christ, that which is central to the faith. And the good doctrine is everything else, all the truth of the scriptures, all the doctrine that is here for us. It says this is what a good servant is. A good servant is one who is trained in the words of the faith, one who knows good doctrine. After all, the alternative is in verse 7, where he says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, or as we might say, old wives' tales. It's that worldly knowledge, the worldly wisdom of the world, which has nothing to do with Jesus, that does not know what godliness and righteousness is. It's only worldly wisdom that tells you to look out for yourself, that tells you to get what you can while you can, because this is it. And he says, no, have nothing to do with worldly wisdom. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. But rather, train yourself in the words of the faith. D.A. Carson grew up as the son of a pastor, and he said that his father was so immersed at all times in the scriptures that even if you just asked him an ordinary question, he usually found a way to respond by quoting the Bible. He would respond with, with answers that he had read in the scriptures. He was so immersed in it and so trained in it that it just came out. He, he was one, like they used to say of the Puritans, if you pricked them, they would bleed Bible. It, it was in their blood. They were trained in the words of the faith. And he says, we too are to train ourselves in the words of the faith and of good doctrine. This is the training regiment that we are to enter into because we have a goal that we want to attain. And we find, okay, I might not be fully suited for that. How do I train myself? Well, for a believer, you train yourself by knowing the scriptures, by being trained in the word of God. Now, let me say something to our, our children and our young people who are here about how to train yourselves in the scriptures. So, so kids, I want to share with you something that my father taught me about how to get a grip on your Bible. Kids, hold your Bible up for me, just, just real quick. Get, get a grip on your Bibles right now if you have them with you. My dad taught me this. If you want to get a good grip on your Bible, you need to have, what, all five fingers. He said you need five fingers to get a good grip on your Bible so no one can take it away from you. And that's five things to do. First, he said we need to hear the word of God. Right, we need to hear it. That's the first way we learn the scriptures is by hearing at church, whether the pastor is preaching or your Sunday school teachers are teaching, your parents are teaching, we hear the word of God. Second, we need to read it. As soon as you're able, some are not able, and so your parents will read to you, but as soon as you're able, the first and best thing to read is your Bibles. And we learn the Bible, we are trained in the scriptures through reading our Bibles. The third way we get a, a, grip, a grip on the scriptures is through study. We don't only read it, but we also need to study the words that are there. That's what some of our, our older kids are doing now with Mr. Allen and Miss Misty in their classes. They're learning how not only to read the Bible, but how do you study it? 
How do you think about it? How, how do you get a lot out of what is written for us that we need to study? Fourth, we need to memorize. We memorize the words of the Bible. Right? Psalm uh, 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. David says, I, I've memorized it. It's in here. I know the words by heart in order that I might not sin. So we need to hear the word of God. We need to read the word of God, study it, and memorize it. But if you only have four fingers, you can't really get a good grip on the word of God, can you? It can be easily pulled out. You need a fifth thing. And the fifth thing is meditating on the word of God. Now, Joshua 1.8 says, uh, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Then, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. We need to meditate on it. It just means to think about it, to ponder it, to think over all the good things that are in here, all the truth that is in here. And when you have all five, then you get a good grip on the word of God and you can be trained in the good words of the faith and the good doctrine that we have followed. That's what Paul is saying, that we are to be trained in the scriptures. Now, we are to be trained in the scriptures, but we are to be training for godliness. If we are to be trained in the scriptures, we are training for godliness. Look at verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. This is the goal. This is the purpose for which we are training. This is that thing that we have our sights set on that we are to desire to accomplish that requires us to do training. This is very vivid imagery that he uses here because he says, train yourself for godliness while bodily training is of some value. So he points us here to physical training, to actually exercising your body, working out, running those stairs, doing the training you need. He says, bodily training, that's of some value. But godliness has value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. So he points us to physical training. He says, godliness training is like that but it's far more valuable than that. It's far more valuable than that. He's teaching us here about priorities because we, we live in a world that really highly values physical training, don't we? People value physical training. Uh, we go through all these fads of different workouts. What is the workout of the day? Well, there's CrossFit. Before that, it was P90X. Before that, it was who knows what it was. But we value that. Just as a society, everybody loves and knows those things. But Paul is saying, that's fine, but godliness is far greater than that. The value of godliness is far, far greater in comparison. It's a very countercultural value to hold. But he says, it has value in every way. In every way. And listen to the two ways. He says, it has value for the present life and the life to come. Is that how you think about the value of godliness? Don't, wouldn't most of us have to admit that we actually think, well, godliness has value for the age to come. We're not so sure about its value for the present life. It, it seems almost inconvenient during the present life. It, it seems almost a distraction. But Paul says that godliness has value in the present life and the life to come. It has value for the way we live our day-to-day -day life. There is value to learning and training in godliness, which is holiness. He's talking about something here that is active. To train for godliness, God, what, I mean, what is godliness? It's an active sort of lived-out faith. 
right? It, that's why he compares it with physical training and physical exercise because godliness is an active sort of thing. Godliness is, is not something you think about. It's something that you do. It's a way you live your life. It's not just a, a quiet and peaceful disposition, a sort of a stained glass, pondering, halo-wearing sort of thing. He says godliness is, is an active sort of lifestyle. It's an active living. It's like Ezra. He studied the word of God to do it, to live it out, to live life in an actual Christ-like way. As James says, we are to be doers of the word. Not readers only, but doers of the word. We are to be those who are growing in our ability to practice the fruit of the Spirit. Godliness includes growing in love, growing in joy, and peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are virtues of godliness. And Paul says, train yourself for these. Train yourself for these. They won't come easily. If you've tried them, you know. These are not natural to our our human state to practice and to grow in these things, he says, you must be training yourselves for godliness. Training yourselves to do this. And it's interesting to make a few observations about what training is. First, training always involves change. Training always involves change. That's why we do it. Right? Because we have set our goal on doing something, perhaps running a 10K. You say, that's my goal. Well, I can't go out and run a 10K right now. I need to train for it. So I need to enter into a process of how to change myself, change my physical fitness level so I can accomplish what I want to do. He says, godliness training is the same way. It involves change. It involves actual change of character. Maybe you're not currently good at being patient with difficult people. Therefore, we need training for this. Maybe we're not currently good at purity in speech or hospitality or generosity or prayer. He says we need to enter into training for godliness. It's going to require change on our part to train for godliness. Also, training requires time. Training takes time, doesn't it? That's perhaps what we think of is, is this is going to take a time. We set a schedule. We say, okay, maybe by next July I'll be able to accomplish what I want to do. Maybe by two years from now I'll be able to accomplish what I want if I start training now. You don't just decide one day that you're going to wake, wake up and run a marathon that afternoon. It takes a period of training and growth. You have to plan in advance for this. And it's the same way with godliness. In fact, that's how we should think of godliness. As something that is a goal worth achieving, worth straining for, because it is of value in every way, and therefore we train for it. We train for it. I, I remember one of my professors in seminary, one time he and I and and one other student, there were just three of us, we had been sitting around a table and we were reading through Exodus together and, and there was a particularly thorny passage in the beginning of Exodus that we were trying to, to wrestle through and to work through for the entire class. And we got to the end of the class that day and I, and I remember my professor said, I'm really hoping within the next five years to, to get a better grasp of this part of Exodus so I can live more faithfully. That really stuck with me that he was taking this long view of godliness and saying, I don't understand everything right now. I'm training in it. And my goal, my desire is, let me look long-term. Five years down the road, will I be living more faithfully because of the training I'm doing now? 
Will what I am doing now, the way I'm living right now, the study I do, will it be paying off in the future, even five years down the road? We tend to take such a short view of things like godliness. We say, I'm going to set that alarm clock and get up and read my Bible every day, and it lasts, what, two days? And then that snooze button is just right there calling our name. But take the long view. What do we need to be doing now so that five years from now, you can say that, that you are living a life that is more faithful to the grace of God, that displays more of the fruit of the Spirit because of what we're doing today. We need to train for godliness, taking a view of the long term. It takes time to train for anything that is worth it. Sometimes the, the growth that we experience in training is it not very slow. You run one mile one day, you run 1.1 miles the next day, you only run half a mile the day after that. It's, it's a slow process of growth, and we should expect that it will be the same in our growth and godliness. But over time, we'll be able to see some progress. One of my favorite things to do in Colorado is, is to go hiking in the mountains when I'm there at my parents' house. And, and sometimes when you're walking up these big mountains and you set a goal of climbing this mountain, you're just hiking and it feels just interminable. You're going up this path forever and you feel like you're not making any progress. But what you can do every now and then is you just turn around and you see where you've come from. And you say, you know, each step, it felt like I was getting nowhere. But you look back and you're able to see the progress. Because you've taken the long view and decided I'm not going to measure every single step, but I'm going to hike this whole thing, you can begin to see progress over time. And it's the same way with godliness. When we put our best efforts into this, you might not be able to measure the growth day by day, but you'll look back and say, you know, two years, two years ago, I did not have the patience that was required to deal with this kind of person, and yet now, through God's grace, he's transformed me into the type of person who is able to display more fruit of the Spirit, who's able to be more patient with those who are difficult. Maybe two years ago, I was not as generous a person I was greedy and stingy, but over time, by his grace, the Lord is transforming my character by his spirit. And now, I'm able to be more faithful with my finances. It's this kind of slow, long-term growth that I believe Paul desires out of us when he says this, train yourself for godliness. So it requires change, it takes time. Training also requires hard work. It requires hard work. The word itself here for train, it's the word gymnazo, which we get our English word gymnasium from. That's this athletic metaphor of actual physical training, of actually going into the gym and, and working on this. Or again, look at, look at verse 10, the way he describes it, when he says, to this end we toil and strive. That's Paul's idea of training for godliness. His life is a series of toiling and striving after growth and grace. To this end, we toil and strive. And the reality is, this is the normal way that the Bible talks about sanctification. This is the normal way. We remember Paul, just, well, later in, in chapter 6, he'll tell Timothy, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. Or 1 Corinthians 9, well, he will say, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body, and I keep it under control. He is training himself, to walk in godliness. Or some of my favorite metaphors are in 2 Timothy chapter 2 uh, when he says to Timothy, 
An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. All of his metaphors for growing in grace are this hard work, physical training. He says growth in godliness is going to be like that. It's not going to come easily. It's not going to be something that you just you know, accomplish in five minutes one day. But it requires work. It's a, a fight that requires diligence and training. And he says you must put in your best efforts on this. And if you don't, then don't be surprised if, if you're not able to see any results. So what he says here is if, if we value godliness, which we ought to do, it has value in every way, then we work for it. We fight the good fight. We train ourselves. We discipline ourselves to grow in godliness. And the fourth thing he says, it requires change. It takes time. It takes work. But then he says it's of great value. It's of great value. If it's a little intimidating to, to hear these words, train yourselves for godliness, he says, it has value in every way, both in the present life and the life to come. He says the problem really is this, that we undervalue the practice of holiness. We undervalue it. That's why it sounds difficult to work on it, because we don't treat it as something that is worth the best of our efforts. It's about our priorities. See, every person in the world is willing to work for something that they esteem as their top priority. And so Paul is, Paul is telling us here, esteem godliness and Christ-like character as our priority. So he tells us in this passage, we are to train ourselves in the scriptures for the purpose of godly living. But then he says here in verse 10 that we are training based on hope. Our training is to be fueled by, motivated by, hope. Look at what he says here in verse 10. For to this end, that's godliness, for to this end we toil and strive. Why? Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. So Paul knows if this is difficult, he needs to give us some great motivation. He needs to give us some great fuel, some great sight of something that is glorious that will spur us on to work hard for it. When you have a vision in your mind of a glorious prospect, of a goal that is worth all the work and training that is necessary, he says, you will be joyful to work for it. And so he wants to spur us on saying, this is the reason I toil and strive. I do it because my hope is set on the living God. That's the reason we should go all in pursuing godliness because your hope is in God. Now that may seem at first to be a, a little bit uh, sort of counterintuitive, but there's a logic to it. See, see we, we so often think of it this way. We say, well, if, if I'm saved by grace, then I don't have to do anything. Right? It's not by my works, therefore I don't need to try. But you know what the truth is? If that's your view of grace, then you haven't understood grace correctly. Because that's not how the Bible describes grace. Here's, here's the truth that Paul teaches this, that it's the person who knows grace the most who will be the most motivated to pursue godliness. It's the person who knows grace the most, the best, the thoroughest. That's the person that's going to be motivated to pursue godliness. See, grace is not just saying, it doesn't matter what I do, I'll be saved anyway. That's never how the Bible teaches us what grace is. Grace is this. Grace is, 
the wages of sin is death. There's no getting around that. But Jesus, in his infinite mercy, took your sins on his shoulders. And because of that, he went to the cross and received the full and just punishment for those sins. He died to sin in order that he might live to righteousness, that we, being united to Christ, might also die to sin and live to righteousness. See, that's the way the Bible describes grace. And so it says, if you know this grace, if you know this Jesus, who in his mercy has taken your sins, then your delight will be to pursue Christ-like living. Your delight will to be to, to look at the Savior and say, Lord, I want to be like you. I, through Christ, have died to sin. How can I live in it any longer? You see, the reason he died is that we might live to righteousness, that we might walk in newness of life that we might now pursue a means of living that was not open to us before. It's this godliness that is so valuable. And so when we have our eyes fixed on Christ and our hope set on the living God, then there's a, a, a motivation that it's like a tractor that pulls you towards godliness. And you say, this is my great desire and hope, that I might grow in this. Then I become I have a holy discontent with my abilities and my standard of living. A holy discontent with the continuing sin that remains in my heart. And I say, Lord, may I, by your grace, continue my training in godliness. May I, by your grace, continue to rid my heart of the sin that so easily entangles. Why? Because my eyes are fixed on Christ and it's the vision of his glory that motivates me to train diligently. That I do not train based on my own desire to live a life that I think others will be pleased with or because I want to show off my own righteousness. That sort of motivation does not last. The only motivation that will last over the long haul of training for godliness is that your eyes are fixed on Christ. That your eyes will be fixed on Christ, the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. That's a tricky phrase I think a good way to understand it is this, that, that word especially, it can also mean that is. So is, he's saying here, our hope is set on God, the Savior of all, that is, the ones who believe. He's explaining what he means there. He's saying God is the Savior of all people, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, all people God is the Savior of. That is, he's the Savior of the ones who believe. And if your hope is set on him, if your eyes are focused on Christ, that is the fuel, that's the motivation that we need. The more you tell yourself, I must do this in order for, for me to grow in godliness. If you're talking to yourself about yourself, you run out of motivation. But if you tell yourself about Christ, about what he has done for you, the depth of his mercy at the cross, taking your sins, that then is, is the strength. That's the protein of training for godliness. That's the motivation. What else is going to give you the motivation over the next 50 years? 60 years. Kids, 70 years. Who knows how many they have. What will provide that sort of energy over the long haul to live a life of godliness and holiness? It's the mercy of Christ. Let us set our eyes on God, who's the Savior of all who believe. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for Christ. We give you thanks that you in your mercy and grace have 
looked on us with great compassion, and you are the Savior of those who believe. Through the cross of Christ, taking our sins on his own shoulders, that we might live in newness of life, that we might walk in Christ-likeness. Father, we are glad to admit that this is far beyond our own strength, our own capabilities. Will you give us an extra portion of your Spirit that we might keep our eyes on our Savior Jesus Christ and never on ourselves, that we might be drawn to him, that you in your mercy will apply the gospel each day to our hearts to humble us, to give us a new joy, to give us a new gladness in Christ. This is our desire and this is what we ask in the name of our Savior. Amen.